The ABA is joining with Tropical Birding for the first time for an extraordinary adventure in Thailand in 2019. This is Thailand birding with a camera. So if you are a photographer that likes birds or a birder who likes to take a few photos, this is a trip with you in mind. And there are no shortage of incredible photo subjects in Southeast Asia. Stuff like sunbirds, pitta, incredible pheasants, spoonbilled sandpiper, some of the coolest looking birds on the planet. Plus mammals, culture, and amazing food with ABA friends. This is setting up to be a really exceptional time. Have I interested you yet? Is your mouth watering for bird photography and the real deal pad thai? Get more information at aba.org slash travel. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Swick. I don't know if you've heard this. This is the sort of thing that's been going around social media lately, but um, yeah, birds aren't real. Everything you know is a lie. This, of course, according to a, a dude on the internet with a YouTube channel. Yeah, I like most things. And most importantly, he also has an online shop. There is a birdemic happening! Birds are a myth! They're an illusion! They're alive! Wake up, America! Wake are you convinced? I don't know about you, but this, the screaming always convinces me. I was in the field once with this guy, and we had one of those tricky trails type flycatchers. You know how they, you know they are. And I was pretty sure it was a willow, but uh, the other guy screamed at me that it was an alder, and you know he had a sign too. So, you know, then the bird flew away. I, I, I guess he was right. And what are birds anyway? According to our the shouty fellow here, uh, they're government drones, naturally. And when you watch birds, they're actually watching you. It's fairly clear that all this whole spiel is an attempt to move some silly t-shirts and stickers, which, you know, full credit to you, friend. I can speak from experience that the birds are real side of the debate isn't particularly lucrative, so you might, you might as well go 180 degrees on it and give that a try. But why stop there? I have some other conspiratorial ideas uh, in that vein to try on. Uh, how about this one? Atu is not real. It's a result of a psychocilocybin reaction given to birders. Our tours was in on it. Now Zuganrua tours is in on it. The planar boat never actually leaves. You just think you're on Atu. How about this one? All large white-headed gulls are actually the same species, but they are kept separate by bird book publishers interested in padding page counts. Uh, how about uh, crossbill eruptions are a vast conspiracy by Canadian lumber companies to periodically set hordes of birds on American cone crops to affect U.S. lumber production by a marginal percent. You know, that's where the money's made on the margins. Yeah, this one goes all the way to the top. And of course, you know, all the ABAs are actually one ABA working together to reestablish a competitor to the National Basketball Association. Though it's not clear what the American Birding Association's role will be, but we are standing by for further instructions. On the show today, ABA President Jeff Gordon is out enjoying fall birding by bike, a singularly pleasant way to experience the season. He'll opine on that. But first, Molly Adams of the Feminist Bird Club is with me to talk about her club, its growth, and the importance of finding your niche even within the birding community. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the first part of October 2018. October is a great month for rare birding in North America. Birds are moving and lost birds are particularly obvious 
The big news for the period just came in right before I recorded this. The ABA's second record of double-toothed kite was photographed in Hernando County, Florida. This strange raptor is pretty widespread in the neotropics from southern Mexico through the Amazon basin. The ABA's first record came from High Island, Texas, a bird that was photographed and originally identified as a Cooper's hawk when the person showed the photos to someone else a few weeks later. I, I can imagine the response. Anyway, that was in 2011. It was a young bird. This one looks like a young bird, so maybe something's going on there. Anyway, it's pretty amazing, obviously, a first for Florida. As the season winds down in western Alaska, the ABA's second record of sedge warbler on Gamble in the Bering Sea was a nice find right before birders start coming home from those islands. Sedge warbler is pretty widespread across Eurasia, but winters almost exclusively in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is one of those 180-degree migrants that went northeast instead of southwest. First records of note include a rock wren in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. This species seems to be on a little bit of a run in recent years with records in the last couple of years from uh, Maryland, New Jersey, and Ontario. Maine's first record of gray flycatcher was seen on Monhegan Island. It's been a great year for first in Maine. Uh, Wyoming had its first record of fork-tailed flycatcher near Casper. You may remember that I mentioned Colorado's first record of the species last time around, so something of a pattern along the front range of the Rockies lately. New Brunswick's first record of gray kingbird in Wilmot was only the third for Atlantic Canada. South Carolina also got a first record of a vagrant kingbird. This one was a tropical kingbird in Charleston County. And in Arizona, the state's first ringed kingfisher was seen in Graham County. That had to be exciting. That's such a dramatic bird. This was a quick roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning. That is blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. For many of us, birding is about community, and for retaining people in the hobby, finding a group of people you like to bird with is as important as that first pair of binoculars or a field guide. It is a, it is a nut that bird clubs and Audubon chapters across North America have been trying to crack, and one person who has seen a lot of success with this is Molly Adams of Brooklyn, New York. In 2016, she founded the Feminist Bird Club, an inclusive birdwatching group dedicated to providing a safe opportunity to connect with the natural world and urban environments. Uh, Molly and the FBC were featured in a New York Times article earlier this year about young urban birders, and the group has only grown in numbers and ambitions since then. She's here with me now. Welcome, Molly. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I, I thought the New York Times piece was really great. Um, I mentioned it in an earlier episode of this podcast. Uh, you know, with one exception, maybe the journalist trying to make the young urban birders uh, yubbies <laughs> a thing. <laughs> I don't suppose uh, that's caught on, has it? It, it certainly hasn't. I, <laughs> oh. I um... I didn't get to edit that out of the, <laughs> the story, but yeah. I'm, I'm glad that it hasn't really taken shape. <laughs> oh, well, I just got to throw things at the wall and see, and see what sticks. <laughs> so uh, tell me about the origin story of the Feminist Bird Club. What, what need did you see that, that wasn't being met by other bird organizations? Well, the other bird organizations in New York City are wonderful, and I definitely didn't think there were too many um, voids that needed to be filled, but a lot of my friends had a big issue with getting up before 10 a.m. <laughs> in 2016. So I did start with some pretty late afternoon walks and more um, midday mm -hmm. walks to uh, bring my friends into the group. And so, so what does one of your walks look like? You know, who are your who are your typical attendees? 
Um, there's a wide range of usually women, but also people who identify as men or non-binary. And the age range is also pretty, pretty big. Um, but I'd say that the New York Times article was written based on a walk where the majority of people were young. So that image has, has definitely stuck with, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> with the perception of my club. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty wide range of audience members. You, you wrote that you described birding as a form of active meditation. I, I, really, I really like that characterization. It sort of really gets to sort of what I like about birding as well. Um, you interact with a lot of people who are sort of just discovering birding. You mentioned you were trying to get your friends into birding as well. Do you find that that to be something that appeals to, to a lot of different people? This, this idea that you sort of, I, mean, I don't know, out of your own head a little bit, but still you like really focused on what's going on around you? Yeah, I'd say that that's the number one reason why most of the people come on the walks that haven't been birding before, mm -hmm. um, especially at the time when I created the club. Uh, there was a lot of anxiety about the election, and I felt like it was definitely my way of escaping um, and also just getting out of the hustle and bustle of New York City. It was the first or second year I had been living in the city for a few years and I was traveling a lot to the outskirts of Brooklyn because mm. I had also just started working down in Coney Island so I was seeing parts of the city that I had never seen before and um, it was a really calming way to navigate being back in, in New York City. Hmm. Yeah the, the birding I mean the birding in New York City you know ur urban birding is sort of a, th a thing in its, its own sense but but New York has such a great birding community and a lot of really great places to bird in the in the city itself. Do you feel like that has really um, played a part in the appeal of a group like this? Is, is this sort of a surprising aspect of it where people are sort of, you know, discovering the city that maybe they've been in their whole lives, but sort of in a different way? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I actually went birding with someone who is just starting out. They just got their first pair of binoculars mm -hmm. about a month or two ago. And he grew up in Queens, but uh, had never really been to Prospect Park before. Oh, yeah. So that was really shocking to me because Prospect Park just seems like this mecca for nature right. in, in New York City in general. But um, it definitely gave this birder a new a new spot to check out. They're actually there. Yeah. Or they were there this morning, which is huh. really cool. That's great. Do you, do you seek out kind of out of the way places in the city to, to do, to do these field trips to do birding trips? I don't know. I, I didn't seek them out in order to, to do the walks, but rather I was sort of seeking them out for myself when I started to work in Coney Island and I was driving a lot for work and I would, I would drive over a bridge and see a creek and an estuary. And so I sort of explored them on my own first and then really felt like it was important to get people who might focus mainly on birding in Central Park to go down to some of these other areas. Yeah, Central Park's sort of the, the place to go birding, but there's so much more out there too. Yeah, it's probably, I've had one or two walks there for the bird club, but I, I barely go birding there actually. <laughs> The Feminist Bird Club has hosted some some Spanish language bird walks in in New York. Um, how did how did that come about? Did you see a group of people that you could really 
really start uh, bringing into birding that way? So I um, actually was able to take a bird banding course down in Mexico in April, and most of the the banders and um, extractors that I was working with and the, the person who was leading the course, they primarily spoke Spanish, and a lot of the bird guides that we were looking at were in English. Yeah. And <laughs> while we were recording the data, it was also mostly in English. Um, and I think that that was what inspired me to start thinking about how I'm not being as inclusive as possible by only offering my bird walks in one language. And, and that's partly my problem because I can't speak any <laughs> language other than English, right. but, um, I connected with Cal Quinn from New York City Audubon, and she graciously offered to lead a walk. So we've only had one, and it was mostly in English, but having Ken Kaufman's Spanish bird guide with us yeah. was, was added a really great new element to the walk. Yeah, it's really great that he did that. And, and I mean, I, I certainly see that as sort of a watershed moment almost for for you know reaching people who are primarily spanish speakers in in the u.s and, and north america generally you know i see ken's book all over the place even in middle america and stuff it's it's really filled a needed niche i think yeah i noticed that the feminist bird club has expanded recently into boston and chicago in addition to new york has that happened since the new york times article i it actually happened before the new york times oh, right article on which both of those two chapters started, I think, because of Instagram. Oh, right, okay. So either Instagram or Twitter, but both of the chapters were started by people who reached out to me through social media after mm -hmm. seeing pictures of the walks. But since the, the New York Times article, I was contacted by someone in Buenos Aires who oh, cool. actually wanted to start a chapter, but after meeting with a group of birders in Argentina, decided that they wanted to have their own name, but sort of use the same model. Mm -hmm. I've also been in touch with someone from Toronto and Minneapolis. Oh, cool. What is it like to see this sort of idea resonate with people in other parts of the country, well, and the world too, in the case of Toronto and Buenos Aires? It must be really gratifying. It's, it's really surprising to me just because... <laughs> <laughs> the idea really was meant to just be with a lot of my friends and and have my friends go out birding in a group. But mm -hmm. um, it's, again, also not surprising based on our current political climate, right. at least here in the U.S. and also in Argentina. So it's nice to see so many people who care about birds, but mm -hmm. also human rights and, yeah. and, and making a community around uh, issues that are currently being dealt with or not being dealt with, but things that are a bit more human. Yeah. Well, I mean, it does sort of feel like we're in a little bit of a, a moment here for things like the Feminist Bird Club. I mean, it's neat to see the ways in which birding culture kind of reacts to cultural moments and almost sometimes mm -hmm. like makes a structure for them. You know, one of the neat things about the Feminist Bird Club is you create these patches every year. They feature a bird, and that money raised goes to a non-birding social justice organization. Do you find that people are more 
motivated to take that energy and apply it to issues you know beyond birding and conservation as a result of their involvement in in feminist bird club i do think so i think that i'd go to say that the majority of birders are pretty open-minded when mm-hmm. it comes to things like this but maybe a bit more reserved because birding is also an activity that you can definitely do very independently but i do think that Lots of people were looking for a way to form together and be a part of something much larger. And and this definitely has given a lot of people the, the, the means of doing so. Yeah. Well, you know, birding is really good for that. I mean, you talked a little bit about how there's a lot of organizations, birding organizations in New York, and, you know, yours is sort of different. And in my mind, it always makes me really happy to see people kind of finding these, finding their own niches in birding and finding a way to interact with people, both through birds, but also in, in, through bigger bigger issues that, that people are dealing with. And it's, it's, it's nice that birds can be kind of a conduit for that. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to work also in conservation and education mm-hmm. separately from the bird club, just because a lot of like-minded people who work in conservation and clearly care about animals are also having a really hard time prioritizing conservation issues with social justice issues right and this club has been a really interesting way to to navigate that yeah yeah in, in a way you can sort of do both yeah um, how, how do you go about choosing which other organizations to to donate your your patch money to well the first organization i chose was planned parenthood and that was sort of a no-brainer like a, i think the day that <laughs> right, that yeah. um the federal funding for Planned Parenthood was threatened, I immediately made that the organization. Because originally Mm -hmm. I was going to use it to buy binoculars for young birders in New York City, but I um, definitely saw the amount of patches sold skyrocket after I, I changed the organization. This year I've raised over $4,500 for Black Lives Matter yeah, I mean, it seems like it's growing every year. I mean, you're getting more and more money. I mean, it seems like you're really, you've hit a nerve. Like, you've really hit on something that people are really feel invested in. I definitely think the New York Times article helped out this year. But yeah. we'll see next year. Right. <laughs> but, yeah, it's unfortunate. There's no shortage of organizations that need, <laughs> true. That need a boost at this time. Um, and we're trying to do fundraising in other ways. The birdathon that I have coming up right, this weekend, yeah. um, and so we've chosen the Crisis Victims Treatment Center in New York City. Mm-hmm. Victims of sexual assault have had to deal with a lot of recent trauma and due to the news cycle and media coverage of the Kavanaugh hearing. It, it pursued me to do research of what organizations in New York City are providing financial support and and other forms of support for victims. Is this a model that the other chapters in Boston and Chicago are sort of are taking with them as well? Not yet. Not yet. I have sent some patches along to the Chicago chapter coordinators, Mm -hmm. but their walks are unique in their own ways. Um, The Chicago Mm -hmm. one is still sort of just starting out, but their first walk was at a, I think it was a preserve of some sort that may be being threatened to be turned into a golf course. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard about this. Yeah, so so yeah. they're definitely 
being politically engaged in other ways that might not be directly connected to fundraising. You've you've written about in, in some in a link from your website, you you mentioned you know safety as one of the reasons why you started the group, and you've you've written about you know being in situations where you've been approached and been made to feel uncomfortable, you know maybe even questioning whether you should be out enjoying the natural world. I, I sort of asked a version of this question to Drew Lanham a few weeks ago with regard to, you know, reaching communities of color, but I, I think it sort of applies here as well. You know, how can we continue to make the case that birding is, I guess, you know, worth it? How do we get people to stick with it, to get to that point where you're willing to assume the risk because the, of the hassle? How does a group like the Feminist Bird Club fit into that? I definitely think birding in numbers is one of the easiest ways to convince people that what they're doing is worth it and safe. When I first started the group, I did write a short blurb about how you can use your binoculars for self-defense. But I mean, mm -hmm. from, from experience in the moment, it's very hard to think quickly like that. And I do feel like mm -hmm. incorporating like self-defense lessons into the Feminist Bird Club or classes that are available may be helpful, but um, mm -hmm. just knowing your surroundings, which can be difficult when you're starting to bird, but once you yeah. get the hang of it, and I feel like it's something that I, I definitely still struggle with and will find myself birding by myself more often than I would would hope or like. But, right. but um, yeah, it's a, it's a risk that birders do take, and... If you are a person of color or if you identify as queer or a woman, it's it's definitely a bigger risk than than other birders are making. Is there a way that sort of established bird clubs can make their own their own walks, their own group outings more inclusive to be more um, you know, sort of open to, to helping people get out and experiencing nature in ways that don't make them that do not make them uncomfortable? the easiest way to do that is by asking people who may not be expert birders to lead walks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Oh yeah. And have, have different types of events and walks that are still outside mm -hmm. and birding, but led by, by more amateurs or definitely women and, and people of color and people who identify as queer. I think that the mm -hmm. national Audubon and New York city Audubon, did a great job with their LGBT walk, which stood for Let's Go mm -hmm. Birding Together. Um, <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> it was just the title and, and designation of the walk as being something that was part of Pride definitely got a lot of non-birders and birders alike that may have felt excluded in the past mm -hmm. from more traditional bird clubs out. It's really simple. Like it's it's just an acknowledgement to these these issues that I think can can make somebody who is a minority feel more comfortable and more safe and more welcome. Molly Adams of Brooklyn, New York, is the founder of the Feminist Bird Club. Well, the New York chapter, I guess. Um, now that there are a couple more, uh, if you're interested in getting involved in that group or maybe starting your own chapter, you can get more information at molly-adams.com slash Feminist Bird Club. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can find it. I, I really appreciated this discussion. Um, good luck as the, as the club grows, and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I spend a lot of time birding by bike these days. I didn't really set out to, 
A couple of years ago, I was looking for an enjoyable way to increase my physical activity and fitness that would injure me less often than running, and biking has done just that. It's also given me a quite different birding experience than I've had either on foot or by car, mostly in good ways. I had two parallel bike birding experiences this past week that I wanted to share with you. Both involve sightings of colorful but cryptic little marsh birds. Last weekend, I saw a lease bittern just south of Newcastle, Delaware. This weekend, a Virginia rail here near ABA headquarters in Delaware City. Being October, it's the height of fall migration for many species, and that great biannual deck shuffling and dislocation was without doubt a shared factor in my seeing these secretive birds. But the biggest commonality between the two encounters was also the saddest. I'm sorry to tell you that both birds were dead. One of the real shocks of bike birding is that you see even more road-killed birds that way than when traveling by car. There are so many. In any event, my meetings with both these birds brought on a curious mix of emotions that I think many of you will recognize. A deep and piercing sadness, cut with a shot of awe, and even, and I feel a little weird saying this, but it's true, a tiny but undeniable thrill. It's just heartbreaking that these birds, so beautiful, so tiny, so perfect in their way, met with such ignoble ends, their lives wasted by flying headfirst, literally, into man, machines, and the Anthropocene. That part is truly sad and regrettable. But at the same time, there's also the knowledge that these birds were migrating, rolling the dice at a high-stakes game of natural selection where the payoffs can be big, but the risks are always high. Yet even today, with all its new and man-made hazards, migration can still pay off handsomely, and does for many species. So there is that tension between an individual tragedy balanced by the resilience of populations and species. You have to admire the gravity of it all. Seeing the toll up close makes the stakes that much more real. But what of that thrill I felt? Well, that's a tough one to explain to folks who don't also feel it. I think for me, it comes down to this. Even though these encounters aren't ones I'd ever wish for, even though they made me feel a real sense of mourning and loss as I looked at the tiny, lifeless bodies of the bittern and the rail, I couldn't help but also be moved by the immediacy of being so close to birds seen seldom and usually fleetingly. Even in death, they were gorgeous, their feathers and colors and markings so rich and intricate, and their legs so comically large and powerful in proportion to their tiny bodies. It's hard not to be stirred by seeing all that, despite the dreadful circumstances. This is complex emotional territory, to be sure, and it's a complexity that can lead to a certain amount of misunderstanding, even scorn. See almost any social media post about, for example, watching for vagrant seabirds in the wake of tropical storms, or reports of fallout events where countless birds have disappeared into the depths of the Gulf of Mexico or the Great Lakes for every one that makes it to the shoreline to be admired and to continue on. But you know what? I'm okay with complexity most of the time, and I don't think that those of us who witness the often brutal life of birds are ghouls for having some interest in how birds die. One of the things I value about birders and other passionate students and fans of wildlife and natural history 
is that they are willing to see a more multidimensional, complicated reality than many can abide. I think that willingness makes us better people, more truly caring, and better stewards of this planet. That's my experience anyway. And yes, for those of you who are wondering, I did salvage both specimens. I gently but firmly lodged each one into a little handlebar pouch I have and rode them back to ABA headquarters, put them in Ziploc bags, and placed them in the freezer, along with filled out data forms for the Delaware Museum of Natural History, where they will become part of the ornithology collection. Those individual birds, while they won't get to add to the gene pool, may actually contribute to our understanding of their species, and in turn lead in some small and indirect but real way to us making more room in our lives and our world for the many wonderful, amazing creatures that far too few people even realize exist. And finally, I shared their story with you. I hope you find something of value in it, as I hope you do in all your birding. That would be the best ending that I can think of. This is ABA President Jeffrey Gordon. Good birding. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, then the best thing you can do to support it is to join the American Birding Association. We would love to have you as a member. We are all about making your birding experience as good as it can be through a lot of free resources, publications, young birder programs, events, and more. Get more information about all of it and join us at aba.org slash join. Say the podcast sent you. Special shout out to Colleen Kellefant of Voorheesville, New York, and Brooke Grant of Washington, D.C. Both joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thanks so much for your support and welcome to the ABA. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's he's trying to coin a term for those birders who are really into photography. It's a, it's a growing group, as you all know. He's gone with phobias, but he's afraid it won't catch on. Technical production is by John Lowry. He's got a name for all those birders who are constantly on their phones, you know, updating eBird with every single little thing they see. He calls them phonies. Though he admits it feels a little put on. Additional help from David Hartley and Greg Neese. They've got a word for people who are really into goal identification. That seems obvious, but uh, you know, it's gullies. But if it doesn't catch on, they're, they're fine ditching it. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. You know, internally, the staff of the ABA, collectively, we call ourselves Abbies. This explains why there's always one person who advocates for monk parakeet as bird of the year. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Until next time.